get rolling. Yeah, sure. Sweet. Well, Neil, thank you for uh, thanks for joining us. Yeah, happy making, to be here. Making the trip across. <laughs> uh, where'd you come in from? Uh, I came in from Seattle. Okay, yeah. cool. How's the trip been so far? Uh, nonstop and easy. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's good. Yeah. So um, you came in Friday, spent the weekend over here in Fort Myers or? You, the be- beautiful Gulf Coast of Florida. Yeah. Cool, yeah. cool. Um, so uh, let's, I mean, I think we, we got a couple of different things that we wanted to talk about and touch on today. Um, but maybe you could start by just giving us a little bit of a background into who you are and then maybe we can get into your business, Yonder West, and and what you guys do. So sure. maybe take it from the top. How, how did you get started in aviation? So um, much like uh, much like one of your pri- previous guests, Ryan, over at SACCOM, um, my first job in aviation was at Independence Air. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. So, yeah. I, I came from the airlines. Um, I'm you know, I, I got my, my dispatcher license in 2013 at Jepson. Um, so I've been, you know, in the scheduling world for quite some time now. Okay. Um, but I, I, you know, grew up in New Hampshire. I was fascinated by, by route structure for the airlines, mostly revenue management. Um, I was at the airlines for about seven and a half years. Um, and then made the uh, transition over to, to, uh, to private aviation. Okay. Um, so, you know, that, that being said, I, because of the way that the airlines worked, I bounced around a bunch. Um, so I, you know, I started in my hometown of Manchester, New Hampshire, went down to Boston, Logan, went out to San Jose, California, came back to New Hampshire, back to California, back to New Hampshire, back to Florida, <laughs> back to Connecticut. Yeah. So moved uh, around quite a bit. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty, uh, to this day, I'm still pretty cross jurisdictional. Okay. <laughs> cool. You said that you spend, uh, is it what time of year you spend up in the in the Northwest? So I typically, um, I mean, summers in the Pacific Northwest are absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. So I would recommend it year round. Yep. But um, I uh, currently divide my time between um, California and Washington State. Okay. Um, I spend the winters um, just outside Vancouver, British Columbia. Okay. Um, and then I am a little bit of a nomad for the summer. Okay. Um, because thankfully we'll get into it, but my business allows me to be remote. Yeah. Um, because you know, to the average customer, the experience is exactly the same, whether I'm sitting at a resort in Cabo San Lucas or at my parents' house in New Hampshire or at a house in California or at my house in Washington. It's really irrelevant to them because they get the exact same level of service because they don't have to knock on the door of the hangar and say, hey, are you in there? What's going on? Yeah, sure. Because (laughs) all I need is a cell phone, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. (laughs) So, and and you said that you also do some camping as well. What what type of setup do you have for that? So, um, I... uh, uh, it's actually kind of funny. I, so I, I tend to lose my, I tend to lose my driver's license physically every like four months. Okay. And every single time it's every time I lose it and have to request a new one, it is an opportunity for them to not give it back to me, but somehow they do, they, they mess that up somewhere at DMV. They're like, we should not be doing this, but here we're doing it again. Um, so I, I, I drive a 2016, uh, Toyota Tacoma limited, okay. um, with a version two go fast camper, uh, okay. that I have I, I lovingly describe it as my baby because it took nine months to get in yeah. the middle of the pandemic. Yeah. So I waited for it for quite some time. Sweet. Yeah. I was going, you know, we didn't talk about that before, yeah. but if I was going to make a guess, I was going to say Toyota Tacoma. Oh, I'm a Tacoma I mean. bro. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's okay. I have some, I have some friends that, that drive Raptors and they definitely pay a Raptor tax. Yeah. So, you know, we, we have, a, we have a little bit of uh, back and forth on that. Yeah. It's all good. Book. <laughs> um, so 
you're now you've been in in on the private side of aviation for a few years now, close to a decade. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about what that experience is like, and then that transition that you made into starting up your your own company. Sure. So um, I started at a uh, private FBO in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Um, uh, I tend to uh, be a little disagreeable, so sometimes uh, things don't work out. <laughs> okay. Um, but ironically, um, I, so while I was there, um, my next job was actually buying their first three airplanes for a startup in Los Angeles at the exact same time that I was working on an FBO 500 yards down the field. So it was, there's a lot of, you know, it, it, things kind of all come around mm -hmm. at the end of the day because yeah. it's, it's a small world and yeah, small sure. industry. Um, so uh, after after I left in Portsmouth, um, I went and got my dispatch license at Jepson in 2013 and then um, started at uh, – I was the first scheduler at, at Surf Air in Los okay. Angeles. Cool. Um, so, uh, you know, I was hired – I, I, I was hired nine days before the start of Part One Three Five Ops okay. for them, um, and I was there for the original for for the first year basically um, of operations. And of course, now there's been some there, there's been some changes yeah, to their business sure. model, of course, um, because that's how that's how things work. But at the time, it was a it was actually a, a, an aircraft operation, um, and uh, it was one of the most insane gratifying experiences of my life mostly because it was like you were building something from literally yeah nothing, right it's awesome um and you know trying to figure out exactly how to make it work um i didn't get a lot i didn't get involved with a lot of like the passenger side of things mm -hmm. but from an ops standpoint like it was really just a blank slate right you had to kind of build it up from you know there was an there was a there's an outline but then you had to figure out exactly how to make that work in the terms of the at the time it's a true startup, you know, limited resources. Yeah. Um, a great team of founders. Wade Ierly is still, you know, one of my biggest mentors. Um, and you know, he's, he's, you know, been around, he's been around the block with a couple different aviation startups. Um, and now he's doing some amazing work in the, um, in, in the student insurance space, education insurance, okay. um, out in Connecticut. Um, so, you know, an amazing founder group, but, um, you know, startups have ebbs and flows. Sure. So, yeah. Sure. What, what was that? process like of like getting being in on the ground floor and, and getting that operation up and going uh i mean i found it to be particularly validating but i think it, it, i don't think that there's necessarily a uniform set of expectations when it comes to startups especially mm -hmm. for actual operation startups sure um you know there's because some folks have some folks have problems with funding. Some folks have problems with with pilots. Some people have problems with maintenance. Um, you know, Surf Air was super lucky because we had a great set of people that you know kind of yeah. came in to set it up. Um, and it, it's a little bit of a small world because you know now I'm also a I'm I also do consulting for a company that helped them start up. And it was one of those things where you know you make friends at one point and eventually it turns into yeah, something else. Sure. So, um, <laughs> but I, I mean, I found it to be to be super validating. Um, you know, I still have some some of my really really good friends um, from from Los Angeles in the surfer days are still some of my best friends today. Cool. So um, you know, it, it, it was important and it it made a uh, there were a lot of uh, compatriots that cool that from from the Los Angeles area. Um, and it was, it was certainly an interesting experience. Um, the, 
the original uh, founding group um, were uh, primar- primarily um, LDS. They were primarily um, Latter-day Saints. And it was to the point where we actually had to convince them that, you know, you have to have coffee on the planes. No one's going <laughs> to want to fly in a Pilatus for an hour up to up to San Francisco if you don't have coffee on the plane. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, it, so, it, you know, it was those kind of like little challenges. But, um, you know, as as it turned out, it was a it was a great stepping stone for me. Um, I had been in Cal- I'd lived in California previously. It was great for me to get back, um, and it was a super super easy decision to make. Sure, um, and it kept me it kept me on the uh, on the West Coast for a good solid five years. Um, and I've been bi coastal between you know being back in New Hampshire and being back in California and Seattle and sure bouncing around. Cool. So. And so, following Surfair, where'd you go from there? Um, I went up to ACI Jet in San Luis Obispo, um, okay. and I'll be forever grateful to Bill Borgsmiller for you know bringing me up there and flying us around and making me fall in love with the Central Coast of California. Nice. Um, uh, you know some of the uh, some of the folks that work there are um, incredibly well-meaning, mm. and uh, it's very validating to get a fresh perspective on aircraft charter, mm-hmm. not one that I necessarily agree with. But, um, you know, th- that's a different discussion. Um, <laughs> so, uh, again, that's kind of one of those things where, you know, I've had a lot of people in my in the last decade tell me, oh, you need to stay in your lane. A lot of them don't know what my lane is. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that I have a problem swaying in and out of my lane, mm-hmm. but it's more just that, you know, there's a preconceived set of notions and it's up to me to kind of bust those up a little bit. Sure. So Okay. Yeah. And so following ACI, where do you go from there? I took a break. Okay. Uh, I worked in the wine industry for a little bit, um, and uh, in on the Central Coast. Okay. Um, did a lot of interviews. Met one of my biggest mentors, um, who now runs a flight department in Michigan. Um, and uh, you know, I ran around a little bit, and eventually found my way back here to Florida. Actually, okay. um, I, I was I was at Satcom for uh, a minute. Okay. Yeah. And what were you doing there? Scheduling. I dispatch? was their flight support coordinator, which okay. is a at the time, it was a poorly defined. Okay. <laughs> it was a poorly defined job description. Um, in fact, when uh, when when I when I was leaving, they were like, "You know, you're not our scheduler, right?" And I'm like, well, "Yeah, clearly." <laughs> like, <laughs> like, but you didn't. Ne- you never actually told me that. Uh-huh. But I, I kind of figured it out. Yeah. So yeah. All right. And so tell me how how did you come about in in starting Yonder West? Um, so I had moved back and forth a few times between California and, 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 um, and and Florida and Connecticut. And I was at, uh, Gamma Aviation, which was at the time the exclusive partner for Wheels Up. And now of course they're owned by Wheels Up. Um, and they basically brought me in to be one of four people on staff to basically handle managed operations. Um, so there'd be one person doing a 12 hour shift. Um, and you know, you would have a, a group of eight to 12 schedulers, logistics folks, dispatchers, they were all kind of focused on the wheels up fleet. You would just have me. And, you know, when I swapped out with someone else, they would bring in someone else. But basically, you know, they, the, the managed side of the house was completely, you know, alien to a, a lot of my, um, a, a, a lot of my uh, friends that work there and sure. and and have some have left and some are still there. Yeah. Um and you know I, I all the power in the world to them um because they're they're fighting the good fight, but it's certainly an uphill battle. Um and I wasn't necessarily super thrilled about it mm-hmm. and 
I just decided that I could do it better. And so for the first, uh, I, I was fine for the first like nine months working there. And then the last nine months, it was basically just me trying to get fired. And <laughs> It, 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 it's clearly impossible <laughs> is what is what I'll say. Um, but uh, I, I soft launched the business in Palm Springs, California um, uh, to a relatively positive crowd um, while I was still at Gamma. Okay. Um, and then I on, uh, on New Year's Day, I gave them 30 days notice, way more than they needed. Um, and uh, they said, well, why, why, we, we really like you. Why can't you just stay? I'm like, that ship sailed. <laughs> so, um, so I, I kind of soft launched the business, um, you know, and, and a lot of it, unfortunately, I, I hate to say it, but it was out of desperation, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like if, if, if not now, when? And I didn't know what that time, time span was going to look like. So I figured, well, I might as well do it right now. Okay. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I started the business in um, t- January of 2018. So coming up, uh, depending on when this podcast comes out. Yeah, uh, just, sure. Just about four years. Yeah. Um, so uh, it, it's been a, it, it's been one of those things where I'm a very reluctant entrepreneur. Um, I'm a scheduler and ops guy by, by nature and by trade. Mm-hmm. Um, so owning a small business is, is fun and exciting and Bone crushingly terrifying, frequently <laughs> all at the exact same time. So um, I, I am uh, I, I am perpetually challenged and at the same time horrified. Okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> so tell me, tell me exactly what 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 do you do? I know that you work with Part ninety one flight departments. What's the uh, I guess what are the services that you're delivering to them? What's the benefit that that they're receiving from from you? Sure. So we have um, two main lines of business. Um, I have a partner in Los Angeles uh, named Greg Andrews, um, and he and I are two peas in the exact same pod. Okay. Um, he he he's been in aircraft management for thirty five years. Um, he took a little bit of a break. We're trying to get him back into the real world here. Um, but uh, he he half jokingly describes me as the scheduler he's been waiting for for forty years. Mm-hmm. Um, we have two main lines of business, uh, the first of which is kind of my side of the house, which is contract dispatch and scheduling. So we do Part 91 um, logistics, um, international trip support, ground handling, um, pretty much anything that you would expect a standard corporate scheduler to do. We do it on a remote basis, um, and uh, a vast majority of my work is retainer. Okay. So we're not uh, – it, it's not really like a contract flight attendant or a contract pilot where you're counting how many days you're using them. You're airlining them from home to wherever the airplane is. You're, you know, you're figuring out how that works and you bill it out at the end. Sure. I charge a flat monthly fee. Uh, my clients have the ability to call me 24 hours a day, seven days a week, um, with the exception of, of New Year's week because I have my own personal travel. Okay. One, <laughs> one, week, one week a year. Um but uh, yeah, they they have um, unlimited access to use me. They don't have to worry about you know, you know, if we need them for an extra week, is that going to be a problem? The answer is always no. Sure. Because they're already paying for that flexibility. Sure. Um, and you know, the, the, as a result of that, I'm kind of alleviating them from a lot of the pressure points, both from a staffing perspective. So if you have a, a scheduler who's overworked. Um, or has you know just way too much on their plate, and they need to you know they need to jettison some of, of the excess stuff. They have a person to to fall back on, all with 
you know, implementation of of me and and my team and dispatchers um, being able to kind of fill in that gap in a matter of hours rather than going through a full onboarding process. And, you know, you have to figure out and teach all this stuff. Like, we, we can literally be, we can literally implement the entire portion in a matter of hours. Okay. And, and a vast majority of that is because if you're a traditional flight department or if you're an aircraft management company, the owner of an aircraft comes to you and you say, okay, well, this is, you know, this is my box, right? And they build a box and they figure out a way to put all of those services that they can provide for you into that box. Mm-hmm. I do the exact opposite. So instead of building, a, instead of having a predetermined and predestined box, I actually create a box for an individual client or for an individual aircraft. So sure. you can have, you know, sister ships, right? You can have, you can have, you know, serial numbers one at one and two of a Falcon 900, they may have completely separate needs. They may have completely separate mission profiles. Yeah. Uh, they may be operated completely differently. Um, and as a result, I don't have to build a box that accommodates both of them. I just build two boxes, one for each. So it's more of, I call it an evolved offering, but really it's a parse down offering mm-hmm. because the, 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 the box that other people would have to put them in doesn't really move with them. Sure. Whereas m- my box is perfectly made for what they need. Sure. So they can have the ability to use certain sets of my, you know, services without needing the entire thing. Mm-hmm. And that is of course price dependent, you know, what they need, what, what, what flight departments will need out of me is entirely dependent on, you know, exactly what kind of infrastructure I need to build for them sure. rather than setting up a whole set of infrastructure and then needing a flight department to come in to pay those, to, 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 to pay that, yeah. to, 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 you know, to pay that insurance fee and to, you know, manage a fuel program and to do all this stuff, right? This is all stuff that most flight departments do on their own anyways. So all I'm doing is not only administering that in the services that they already have, but I'm complementing their, uh, their existing relationships with their pilots, with their insurance brokers, with their aviation attorneys, with their, um, uh, you know, with with all the f- contract fuel programs that they might have, all sure. all, the, all that stuff that they already have, I am there to help support the growth of that organization, rather than forcing them into a set of services that they don't necessarily need. Sure, sure. So, and and over the last couple of years, especially in the last two years, have been quite a few changes in the industry and the workforce and technology, and so. Um, I guess a a couple different questions for you around that is like, first, you know, years ago you needed, uh, if you had a flight department, you needed a scheduler or a dispatcher in the office. Like a lot of operations had them 24 seven, like ready to go. That's really changed, especially over the last two years. How do you plug into that? And like, you know, regarding like technology and availability and, um, how how does that impact your business, and how do you see that you know, um, how do you see that changing in the industry? So it, it, for for yonder west purposes, it actually works out better yeah, than it sure. did before, um, and, and a vast majority of that is because it, a lot of times the scheduler was kind of just somebody that you chained to a desk in a hangar, mm-hmm. um, and with the pandemic, a lot of people just closed down their hangars. They said. We don't need this space. 
or even if we need the space, you don't have to be here. Why would you drive? Right. Why would you drive half an hour into an empty office just sure. to go to work? So you're doing it from you're you're doing it from a home office, or you're doing it from you know a different desk in an, in you know in a corporate headquarters somewhere. But you don't have to go to the hangar anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, I had to have a serious you know consideration. I, I knew that I knew that my model was was eventually going to prevail. I don't do short-term gains. I mm-hmm. play a longer game. Um, and quite frankly, yeah, the, the more and more people recognized pretty quickly that they didn't need to have their scheduler in the hangar anymore, which was great news for me because in a world where people considered remote work an outlier – all of a sudden it became right front and center as this is the new standard. Right. So again, it makes no difference whether I'm sitting here with you in Fort Myers or if I'm at home in Point Roberts or if I'm, you know, at a house in California or in New Hampshire with my parents or yeah. you know, wherever I happen to be, because this this service is exactly the same. Mm-hmm. So it's the same it's the same thing for for, you know, a, a, a current corporate dispatcher who may have a hangar in Denver, but they're living out of you know a house in in Fort Collins. They don't have to drive to the office every single day. Sure. So um, it, it's allowing. So thankfully for for my benefit, it's allowed more flight departments to consider having outside help that they don't necessarily have to look over their shoulder with because they're not doing that to their employees now. Sure. Yeah, and it's creating a kind of a second layer of redundancy in that, Mm -hmm. you know, like for a lot of flight departments, you know, if you have one or two aircraft, these smaller flight departments, maybe you do have a um, uh, a full time scheduler dispatcher, but the amount of time, like you know, relying on them, one person, twenty four hours a day, puts a lot of stress on an individual having, you know outside help that could come in and supplement that mm-hmm. I would see that being pretty huge for these flight departments yeah and that's something that that you know and kind of another reason I'm here right I'm, I'm trying to educate flight departments that there is that opportunity for them right. out there um, you know case in point there's I've talked to a lot of flight departments that are like oh well we'll never let an outsider in but then they have their scheduler get overworked and leave and they're like well what do we do now we didn't have sure. a succession plan yeah and the answer is that, in you know, for all the services we provide for, um, you know, for you know, total to, total airframe strategy, you know, looking at, you know, what's what's five years down the road, you know, everything that Greg does for me, um, at the end of the day, we are a retention company, right? So, helping relief, you know, make sure that people have have less workload. That they have more to day to day balance, that they have a work life balance, that they can be present for their families, that they can, you know, they don't have to fully focus on work all the damn time. Yeah. Um, you know, that's super important. And as a result of that, it's good for me because more and more flight departments that recognize that their own people are super, super important. If you don't have a scheduler, and you're putting all of the responsibilities that you would normally put on a scheduler onto a chief pilot, pilot or, or onto or, or, or yeah. yeah. And, and a lot of times, especially if you don't have a scheduler, you typically don't even have that additional administrative resources. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if, and you know, I know of, uh, I, I built an international program a couple of years ago, um, for, for a, a group that they do, 
they pre-pandemic they did about 90% of their flying domestic on pretty large Gulfstream jets. Um, but then they would have one random trip a year or two random trips a year where they would go to from you know, they'd go from Vancouver to China and then on to Johannesburg and then over to Sydney and then back to Singapore and then to New Delhi and then to London and Frankfurt and back to London and before they went to New York and then Malibu and then went home again. (laughs) And that one trip, even though it may only have been 5 10% of their flying for the year because they they have three airplanes and they're doing a ton of domestic flying too, it took away 35% of their workload, right? Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden – that all that you know, it, it was like yeah, their pilots don't want to just go down to L.A. all the time because it's you know anybody can do it. Sure, but at the same time, once you're that pilot that gets assigned to that Singapore trip, all of a sudden your workload just explodes. Sure, and having that additional resource is super beneficial. Um, I don't necessarily do a lot of the international trip support myself. I I, I vendor it out. Um, And most of it is just simply as a business person, I don't really like that risk profile. Mm. Um, But that being said, as a project manager, they get exactly the same services that they would, only they have a lot less. They don't have to stay on that vendor all the time. They have me to kind of do that for them. So – they get a lot of they get a lot more flexibility, and at the end of the day, it's like if if that becomes an ongoing thing, people may look forward to that Singapore trip, but they're also dreading the Singapore trip, mm. right? So I don't want to do that. Um, so instead, by having a, a contract dispatcher or a contract scheduler to be able to guide them in that process and provide one solid packet for them to do all their international with then that allows them to get more flexibility. And ultimately, those pilots are going to stay longer because they have less responsibilities. They can focus on what what they're trained to do and what they're really good at, which is flying the plane, mm-hmm. right? So because a lot of, you know, <laughs> pilots are pilots, right? They're always going to try to figure out a way to do it the easiest way possible while still maintaining, you know, consistency and operational readiness. Sure. But the flip side of that discussion is, is that, just because you're doing it the 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 fast dirty way doesn't necessarily mean that it's always the best way. Yeah, so sure. they're become so in reality, I, I mean, Yonder West is kind of a, 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 a it's kind of like an inexpensive middleman to help mm-hmm. flight departments achieve their most ambitious missions while making it look like it's the Van Nuys to Cedarboro Milk Run. Right. Sure. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. And so you know, um, looking at like you know, we had talked a little bit about. Uh, the aircraft management side of things. And uh, I've been talking with a lot of people and there's been a lot of talk about, well, a lot of talk and you see it, you know, on the news about consolidation and, you know, these management companies are getting bigger and bigger. Um, And I know that you have some thoughts about aircraft management. And so, you know, looking at, you know, down the road for Yonder West, how do you guys look at aircraft management and, and what do you look at? What, what would you say some of the differences are in the way that you look at it versus maybe some of the companies that have been in the space for a long time? So Yonder West, to a certain extent, is almost like an aircraft management-like company, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, at the end of the day, sure, an aircraft management company is expected to generally provide aircraft owners maintenance oversight, fuel, logistics, pilots, insurance, all the stuff that comes together that, you know – most companies will put on a brochure and make it seem like it's an exclusive offering yeah. when 
them and every single one of their competitors do it, (laughs) you know, (laughs) because really the, 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 the process uh, for sales for aircraft management haven't changed in 35 years. Mm -hmm. They haven't had to. Right. Um, and you know, the entire argument that, oh, we can get you preferential fuel prices. Yeah. That idea got jettisoned when fuel was $1.95 a gallon. And guess what? That was 2004. Right. Right. Like here we are. 16 years later, and nothing has changed. Mm-hmm. You're using the exact same pitch to an aircraft owner to convince them that you can do something that, quite frankly, you're not very good at at you know following through on the promises you made. <laughs> because the grass isn't, you know, people will be like, oh, well, I don't like this. I'm going to go try it somewhere else. Yeah, but the grass isn't green on the other side of the airfield. Mm. It's just the exact same grass. Right. And and so you know and and it kind of harkens back a little bit to to the box discussion because. In reality, I mean, when when you're an aircraft management company and all of a sudden there's a last-minute trip and things need to go, who's the first person you call? Typically not the pilots. Call the scheduler. Mm-hmm. But that scheduler at an aircraft management company might have 10, 15, 20 other airplanes. Maybe they're working an overnight shift and they have the entire fleet. Right. And all of a sudden, you know, spooling that up becomes a little much. Mm-hmm. And success isn't guaranteed. Sure, <laughs> sure. So, um, so in in reality, by creating a more dedicated set of services, um, Yonder West actually be, is able to provide a more clean existence for aircraft owners. Mm-hmm. Whether they use an aircraft management company or not is really irrelevant at the end of the day because you can run an individually siloed flight department um, and you know have that exact same relationship with your employees that you would by having a direct relationship with Yonder West and still having your aircraft with a large aircraft management company. Mm-hmm. Because ultimately, the, at the end of the day, it kind of you know harkens back to the old political ads, right? Like, who do you really want picking up the phone at 3 o'clock in the morning? <laughs> sure. <laughs> you want someone you can trust. Yeah. And my experience at aircraft management, and bear in mind, it is in no way, it is in no way indicative of every single aircraft management company out there, because I'm sure that there's going to be some CEOs that listen to this and they say, what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, is that it's not really slander if it's true. Mm. <laughs> so, um, you know, the, 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 being able to have that person you can trust, being ha- even having, you know, a, a group like Yonder West as a middleman in between there being like, hey, listen, I'm trying to guide an aircraft owner and this trip into making sure that it's set up for success as much as humanly possible, right? Sure. All the other things that might come into play, weather, COVID restrictions, international customs, fuel availability, um, you know, crew availability, maintenance, all that other stuff, that's going to happen whether I'm involved or not, right? Sure. But at the end of the day, what I can control and what the, what ultimately the aircraft owners want to be able to put that phone down after that 3 a.m. call and feel better about it until 7 a.m. when they get their coffee, right? Yeah, sure. They don't want to have to be agonizing over it because half the time that's what happens. You call up a big aircraft management company and they say, oh, well, uh, yeah, we can try to do that and, yeah, everything will be fine. But at the end, at the end of the night, your reptilian brain is like, I'm not super confident about that right. conversation. Yeah. So at least, you know, having a dedicated having a dedicated person having a dedicated guide for that aircraft journey is super important and you know i'm sure that there will be people who will say oh yeah but we do that all the time it's not a big deal yeah but what you're forgetting is that that aircraft manager even if you have a dedicated point of contact 
if you're at a large aircraft management company, that person is administering 15, 20 airplanes. You're one of many. Mm-hmm. It's sure. not about it, it because it's ultimately not about what you want because, you know, aircraft management companies have no problem, you know, taking taking three different Gulfstream 5s from competing, competing companies and keeping them completely siloed from each other and making sure that you're, you know, you're hiding, you're, you're hiding one person's departure around the other side of the hangar. So that the guy on the other side doesn't know you're leaving, but they have no problem with that. Mm-hmm. Whereas with me, I can be picky and choosy on what aircraft I handle and what aircraft, what companies I deal with and what clients I take expressly for that reason. Right. And because of that, the way that the aircraft management industry kind of looks at a lot of these things is that it's kind of like a, a grandfather kind of thing going on. It's like, oh, well, we have an insurance guy. We have someone that does the fuel. We have someone that does this. We have, we have all these relationships, right? And if you go to the big MBAA conferences and trade shows and everybody's like slapping each other on the back and they're like, oh, everything's great. You know, the fact of the matter is that they're all vying for that piece of that pie when they don't really know what's going on on the inside. The difference is that, and I believe it's a benefit to aircraft owners, is that Yonder West is completely agnostic, right? So I can have individual aircraft using exactly the same services from different companies. And it has absolutely nothing to do with who I like and who I don't like. It's what is best for the individual aircraft owner. Mm -hmm. I can recommend my insurance guy in Sausalito, but I can also recommend an insurance person in Florida. I can recommend an insurance person in New Hampshire. I can recommend in half a dozen tax-free jurisdictions. Sure. But ultimately, all that matters is whether the aircraft owner is getting exactly what they want. Mm-hmm. So being agnostic in the sense is actually a benefit that, unfortunately, because of the way that aircraft management has decided to arrange itself, they've built up that box. And that box includes all of those people and all of those services. They may have great pricing, right? But I can get great pricing too. Sure. You know? And and at the end of the day, the way that people have to kind of look at it is that the I believe that the agnostic view and being able to bring in people and bring in a contract director of maintenance, bring in a, co- a contract pilot, bring in and you know even if they that eventually becomes a full time kind of thing for them, bringing in these people and having this big network of folks that are just standing by to assist, I think that's the future of Part Ninety One Aviation. Mm-hmm. I don't believe that. Um, that aircraft management is the future. I think that, yes, you're right. There's going to be a lot of consolidation and a lot of it is going to be supremely messy Mm -hmm. and it's going to not be great business. I know in the last two years, some of the people that I admire most in aircraft management aren't at their aircraft management company anymore. And it's just simply because the way that the business is run is meant that they're cannon fodder. Mm Mm-hmm. Like I have, I know people that I'm like, I don't, I can't imagine them like of all the people to let go. Why would you let this person go? Mm -hmm. This is your biggest asset. And they're completely oblivious to it because they've already predefined their box. And I want to be in a position to support my fellow schedulers and dispatchers um, and, you know, aircraft sales folks and charter people. But at the end of the day, the fact that the charter groups are all blowing up. They have tons of business. Their leads are massive. At the end of the day, it's the other side of that coin 
that's really being that, that's there detrimentally, right? So if you if you have an aircraft that's operated Part ninety one, you have no interest in charter, and you're an aircraft management company, you're normally the last priority, and all the marketing in the world isn't going to correct the fact that if you have an active trip and you're making revenue on charter and you're promising an aircraft owner charter revenue from it, that is going to be your first priority if you're mm-hmm. an aircraft management company. The Part 91 trips, maybe they're few and far between. Maybe they're super, super active. But at the end of the day, they still take a backseat. And I believe that the more and more people that unfortunately get burned in aircraft management, and especially in charter arrangements, you know, Red wine splashing all up on an, uh, yes. uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I believe that the more and more people that recognize the frailty in that, the more and more they'll realize that a non-denominational, completely service agnostic direction of creating independently siloed flight departments and then administering them is the future. Mm-hmm. I, I don't believe that that you know. There's and don't get me wrong. There's some. There's been some great advancements in aircraft management. Having, you know, you know, set aside accounts for for payments and you know not commingled funds and you know all this stuff. But really, that's a marketing ploy, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's the way it should be. In the first from place. the get go, yeah. I, so so really, like what like what are we doing? We're making it seem as if there's some sort of like special there's some sort of special exclusion to what what one company is doing over another it's the exact same thing i mean my business partner in los angeles greg he wrote half of the aircraft management arrangements and and um and marketing in southern california for the better part of a decade and to this day 2021 2022 we will still see press releases and marketing pieces come out of the Southern California aircraft management companies that I can personally identify which lines were written by Greg Andrews in 1999 (laughs) because it literally hasn't had to change because the way they're selling it is exactly the same as it always has been. Mm. They're going after and they're saying, oh, well, there's, you know, you're getting huge efficiencies of scale. You're getting all this pilot training. You're getting, you know, who has operational control of the airplane, all this stuff. Um, And, you know, LinkedIn aside, every time I see an aircraft management company saying, you know, our G650 is available for charter, it's not yours, mm-hmm. you know? And if you consider it yours, that's part of the problem right there because you are a fiduciary. You have a responsibility to that aircraft owner. You have a responsibility to that client. You have a responsibility to the safe operation of that aircraft because at the end of the day, we're burning dead dinosaurs, right? We're not – it's not about the looks. I mean – the, the average American consumer of private aviation products, when they think of business aviation, they think of two things. They think of Kim Kardashian on the cover of Vogue, <laughs> and they think of um, the the executives from Detroit showing up to Washington, D.C., asking for bailouts back in 2008 mm-hmm. um, you know, on the back of their Falcon. Like, that's what they think of. When they look across the runway and they see a bunch of white tails next to a nondescript hangar, they think it's a bunch of Southwest airplanes that haven't been pulled around to the gate yet. Like there's just no comprehension that they're that to the average American consumer, the business aviation is an industry rather than just an anomaly. Mm-hmm. And because of that, you know, the aircraft management companies have been able to semi-capitalize on that, right? You know, you 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 know, you you deliberately try to make sure that you know your logo is in the shot when the paparazzi are taking photos of, you know, Brad Pitt getting off an airplane. Sure, right. Um, 
and and there there's I'm sure that there is value in that, but at the same time, it's like that's not really what we're about, mm-hmm. right? If you're doing it for your own publicity or you know hiring someone to take beautiful photos of your plane and then you know calling it your plane and then have it leave a month later, because that certainly happened, right? Sure. You know, people's certificate hop and all of a sudden they you know it's like oh well you know this is my plane but I'm going to give it to you and then I'm going to give it to you and I'm going to give it to you and then all of a sudden. You know, a year and a half has gone by, and what have you got out of it? You just lost two hundred fifty thousand dollars each time you switch certificates because you didn't do enough due diligence in the first place to make sure that you did it right. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly why an in, an independent set of advisors is better. Sure. Than the standard aircraft management thing. Because if you walk up and ask for a proposal from any of the, you know, and Southern California is not an exception to any kind of rule. Mm-hmm. South Florida, New York. Yeah, Dallas, Houston—it's all the same kind of thing. You know, they—they they come to you, you, come to them, and you say, "Okay, well, I have a Gulfstream Four. Can you manage this for me?" And they mm-hmm. say, "Okay, yeah, we can provide all of these services." And then they're just crossing their fingers to hope that that you take them up on a bunch of them. Mm-hmm. And you know, for consolidation too. You know, right now the big thing, and I don't think that consolidation management is really at any kind of apex. I don't think it's going to happen for the next nine months or so probably before okay. they're really ready to just buckle in. Yeah. Right now it's FBOs, right? Right now it's FBOs, FBO chains, smaller chains buying bigger ones, um, you know, individual groups buying up smaller groups, that kind of thing. Um, but think about the life cycle of most FBOs these days too, right? When they first started and fuel was had great margins, they could make an entire business on just fuel sales. Right. And then they say, oh, well, this isn't enough. We need to also do aircraft maintenance. Well, if we do aircraft maintenance, we should also be operating airplanes. So we should have a management certificate. We should do charter because then we're going to have guaranteed people flying in and out. We can sell fuel to those people. And then, you know, oh, well, now that we have maintenance, fuel and FBO, we have, you know, why don't we, why don't we also, why, why don't we also venture out into other spaces? Because at the end of the day, they've had to diversify to live. And Vice versa. If you're an aircraft management company, all of a sudden you realize, well, I'm not doing too well. You know, I'm not really providing the promises I've told my aircraft owners I can do. So maybe we should, instead of just operating out of a hangar, maybe we should buy an FBO, mm-hmm. have that dedicated fuel system, sell it to other people. And all of a sudden, you know, you're diversifying out to the point where you're a jack of all trades, but you're a master in none of them. Right. Right. So I believe that, you know, in five, 10 years, maybe Underwest will become a true Part 91 aircraft management company. Mm-hmm. And maybe it won't be under the Underwest name. Maybe, you know, I'll be partnering with half a dozen people I know in the space that also believe that they can do it better than the current establishment. Sure. And that's a part of it. Um, but it really, when you really look down to the brass tacks, is that diversification really something that is sustainable? And I think that pre-pandemic, you could make the argument that, yeah, it, we can make it work. But now? Yeah. Well, I think in, in general, a lot of industries, whether it's, you know, aviation or, or others, there tends to be these, you know, cycles that mm-hmm. everything goes through, right? And sure. so, you know, it becomes a point where there's consolidation and that has its benefits, but then pe- then it, there's it, a it, hunger for... In, 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 until the big boys collapse under their own weight, which we've right. seen multiple times. Yeah, exactly. And then, yeah. then you know, newcomers come to the plate. Mm-hmm. They offer, 
you know, more specialized service or more unique service, or maybe there's, you know, better technology involved or, or whatever it may be. And so to me, I know there's a lot of people saying like, oh, we're, we're going to see this big consolidation, but I do see that just like you said, if I'm a, if I really have a true need for a corporate flight department, do I want my aircraft in the hands of a company or, or do I want my aircraft being in, uh, in, uh, charter or, or whatever? And, and so I'll, I believe there's just going to be a, a flow in which this goes in. One of the, you know, one of the big things that I think everybody is seeing is that, as this demand has increased for charter and as these companies are, are uh, the management and charter companies are getting bigger, there is a shortage on labor. And it's not just pilots, it's maintenance, it's schedulers, it's dispatchers. The FBOs have a shortage and, you know, they can't, they don't have enough people out on yeah. the uh, out on the line to be able to take care of these aircraft. And so from, you know, you being, you know, uh, a, a scheduler, a dispatcher, how do you see that particular role and the people like coming into this industry? Um, do you see a shortage there? What, what do you think needs to happen in order to make sure that we have enough people that are trained and familiar with this particular capability. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that the flashy, you know, the, the flashy discussion on staffing is of course still pilots and maintenance. Yeah, sure. Um, I, I mean, I talked to, I talked to a lot of student pilots and they recognize that I'm not, you know, per se their perfect fit when it comes to, you know, uh, flow charts to an airline or try, yeah, to, get sure. in, try to get it, you know, try to get, you know, a, a first officer position on Pilatus. But that being said, you know, for most of them, they say, well, what do you think I should do? I'm like, well, if you can get your AMP, you should go do it right now. If you can't do it right now, you should have gone back in time yeah. yesterday. <laughs> um, but you know, the, the flashy part of it is pilots, of course, right? If you're flying a if you're if you're flying a Falcon 7X and you're making 175 to 225 thousand dollars a year, and then you decide this isn't for you, and you decide to leave and go to some go work for someone else. That's a huge staffing hit, right? And it's not just about the amount of people out there that are available to work. It's about being better and keeping people longer term, which is, of course, part of my mantra. Yeah. Um, you know, specifically when it relates to schedulers and dispatchers, I think that that work-life balance is exciting if you're young. Mm -hmm. And as, it, as, as you progress, you get better at it, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's better all the time. Mm -hmm. Um there's been a big push with all, a lot of the institutional players to make sure that people have access to um, to to new jobs in business aviation. I mean, if you want to go work for for a big brokerage company, or if you want to work for an operator that's you know and you're scheduling out of uh, out of out of a penthouse in in Manhattan, great, all the more power. Mm -hmm. But the fact of the matter is, it's not enough to just get people in the door. It's not just about welcoming and making sure that, that those anonymous white tails on the other side of the airfield are a viable job option for people. But we also have to be better employers. We have to be able to um, – and, and, you know, I'm in no I'm, – I'm solidly a, a millennial, right? Like, you know, what – I'm – what – you know, doing job applications on TikTok or something like it's just not I, – I don't understand it. <laughs> but at the same time, you, you know, I've seen people that – I know have exceptional talent and they've completely flamed out. 
And it's because we as an industry aren't really that great at keeping people and making sh- and sustaining them and making sure that they have a longer term future because a lot of times and you know aircraft management is absolutely guilty of this it's a little bit of a beat grinder sometimes right mm. you come in you're all excited um, you you get trained up and then after a while you just kind of burn yourself out and I've been on that side of the discussion many times yeah um, I mean at, at, at satcom we were we had three airplanes at the time and we were doing 1300 hours a year on three airplanes. And I was doing it alone. And I remember sitting down with, uh, you know, now she's, uh, uh she's retired. Um, uh, but I was sitting down with a very senior scheduler, um, at one of the S and D conferences. And I showed her, I whipped out my iPad and I showed her our calendar and she was like, you know, you don't realize you're not a small flight department. You're a big flight department. You just don't know it yet. Mm-hmm. And what I didn't realize, and I had a at the time I had a, a I rented I was renting a house in Melbourne, um, and one of my coworkers, not in aviation but in in the company, um, lived with me, and I would wake up at five o'clock in the morning and start returning emails, and he would wake up at seven, take a shower, and go to the office, and he'd be like, "Are you coming with me?" And I'm like, "No, I'm going to take a nap for twenty minutes, and then I have to respond to more emails, and then I'm going to the hangar." Yeah, and he was like, he was like. I don't even want to. <laughs> and, you know, um, but, you know, the, at, the, at the end of the day, like, you know, we have to be better about that. And I want to – I personally find the value in my company to both try to enforce change in the current organizational structures and in the current institutions that are running a vast majority of business aviation, mm-hmm. but at the same time – give those institutions the ability to do that offloading, to be able to be a better employer to their people, to be able to retain people better, to be able to make sure that that the pilots out there aren't worrying about, you know, what Marriott they're going to stay at when they get to Teterboro and more focused on what's going on in the airplane. Sure. And if you have placing fast Wi-Fi and, you know, you're <laughs> watching a movie, that's fine. Because that's not, you know, I want to make sure that they also can do that when they get to their final destination. Yeah, sure. And and it, a lot of times, you know, the airlines are always talking about, you know, arrival within 14 minutes. And they're talking about very structured KPIs. And business aviation tries to, but because it's so dynamic, we kind of lose track of a lot of that sometimes. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that, you know, the, the KPIs are more about how, like, how are we measuring up and actually fulfilling our promises to aircraft owners? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of one of my big focuses is that if we're going to be a better in general employer to people coming into business aviation and we are sustaining them and we are making sure that there is a progression and this is a career that they will stay in for 20, 30 years, because let's be honest, I mean, I'm kind of loud and bombastic sometimes, <laughs> But I'm 36 years old. Mm-hmm. And if you don't like my opinions now, buckle in because <laughs> you're going to have to put up with me for, you know, another 30 years or until, you know, let's count down to my heart attack, let's be honest. Um, so, I, I, I mean, at the, at the end of the day, I believe that I, I believe that I am on the right side of history. Mm-hmm. I think that eventually the curve of justice will bend to a more – just and easily accessible part 91 
infrastructure for private aircraft owners. And it's mm-hmm. only it's going to be something that only expands, right? Eventually, the people that are currently all the way in, they've totally bought into charter, will eventually move into the fractionals. And when the fractionals aren't as competitive for them anymore, they'll move into maybe a partnership, right? Maybe they'll own half of an airplane instead right. of one-eighth of an airplane or one-sixteenth of an airplane. And eventually, they'll have their own, they'll have an airplane of their own. But if the only options available to them are to, you know, if they're being, you know, yelled down by aircraft management sales folks and saying, oh, it's too complicated, you can't do it alone, you're going to get yourself in trouble, it's, you're too much risk, you've got to come with us, or they decide to do that and there isn't light at the end of that tunnel, and they throw up their hands and they say, well, what am I doing? How, how, how do I make this work? Mm-hmm. And the short answer is that there's more and more people like me out there that are agnostic operators. They're, um, you know, they're they're you know truly transparent when it comes to maintenance. They're, you know, all the all the stuff that aircraft management has promised aircraft owners for years. There are groups of folks out there, great men and women, that will be able to create, provide, and sustain for for Part 91 flight departments. Really, we can do it right now. But we can also do it for the next 20 years. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, I've seen the large aircraft management companies come in and say, hey, listen, you know, we can operate a King Air just like we can operate a Falcon 7X. And sure, they're right. But they're only doing that because they feel that there's market pressure that, you know, oh, all of a sudden we're not being competitive in something. So we Mm -hmm. need to make sure that, you know, we say that we can do something like that. Right. And at the end of the day, they're not really reinventing any kind of wheels. It's just another marketing ploy. Mm-hmm. Like, to, if you're a large aircraft management company, you have 150 airplanes under management. Do you really care about signing that Kinger? The answer is you don't. Mm-hmm. Sure, you have a box for them. You've built a box, but at the end of the day, take it or leave it, right? Because if you don't do it, you're doing it at such low margin. Because that same that same operator or that same aircraft owner has probably gotten five aircraft management proposals that they're evaluating. And by and large, they're probably not truly very different from each other other than finance. And in addition to that, every single one of them has had a paragraph written by Greg Andrews sometime in the last 20 (laughs) years. So, (laughs) you know, just remember, I am everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) So looking at... um, you know, I know the, the last couple of years just with COVID and everything has definitely been um, for a lot of businesses, it's it's thrown off plans. But as you as you look at 2022 and continuing to grow your business, I know that, you know, you're you said that you're big on like creating partnerships. How do, how do you look at the next year and, and what are you looking to accomplish and how are you going to go about it? So. The pandemic has certainly changed the way I market and do sales. Mm. Um, I'm overtly not a particularly strong salesperson. I'm an ops <laughs> guy that you know reluctantly kind of fell into this. Um, but you know, I do have a set of standards where it's like you know I want to make sure that you know my logo is present. I believe that it's better to know me and not need me than to need me and not know me. Mm-hmm. So kind of being in that reptilian background of people's minds is more important than, you know, going and knocking on doors every single day. Um, so my marketing is evergreen. I've deliberately designed it so that, you know, whatever an aircraft management company or a competitor throws at me, it's still valid. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, 
And then, you know, in addition to that, I believe that, you know, because I'm not going out knocking on those, I'm not going and knocking on those hangar doors, I'm going into that middle market, right? So I'm going in and I'm talking to the aircraft transaction attorneys and the insurance folks and the, um, and the pilot staffing groups and my own contacts and networks mm-hmm. and being able to be a bigger part of that conversation. Because when someone is looking to either replace an aircraft or buy a new airplane, typically the ops side of that is the last thing, right? Because if you're, if you have an option between five aircraft management companies and they're all going to onboard you in exactly the same manner, and they're all going to do basically the exact same thing for you at the end of the day, when you're operating the aircraft, then really why are we, you know, that's not the front of mind concern. That's not what people are thinking about. First of all, it's like, well, we can just figure that out down the road. Let's Mm -hmm. get the airplane. Let's, you know, do what we have to do to make the money. Right. And then figure out how to operate it later. Cause the one thing that aircraft management is pretty damn good at, unless you have to go through 135 conformity, which can kind of be a burden sometimes. Yeah. Really getting an aircraft up and running isn't really rocket science and it doesn't take long. Mm-hmm. So, and that's one of the benefits, right? If you're an aircraft owner and you have a challenger and you go to an aircraft management company, they say, oh yeah, we can get this, we, we can get you flying in you know, a week or two. And that's great, right? Yeah. That's, that's the timeline that works. Um, you know, for, for me, I, uh, play relatively risk adverse um, when it comes to um, strategy. And that's simply because I'm not a particularly great salesperson, right? I want to make sure that the climate is ready for services that I provide. Um, So quite frankly, I don't really have a ton of plans for 2022 yet. Um, I will say publicly on this podcast that I'm not going to any MBAA events next year. Okay. <laughs> I'm not going to. I'm not going to base. I'm not going to S and D in San Diego. Uh, I'm not going to leadership. Um, doesn't mean I won't fly in for an after party, but I'm not going to any of the events. Um, and quite frankly, the rationale is and is that the ROI just isn't there for me. Um, as a result, of the last couple of years I've had to run very lean mm-hmm. because again, I'm the last part of that discussion when it comes to aircraft operation. And if you're a part do one flight department, you're not back yet. Charter, fractional, blowing up, right? Yeah. Everybody's in the best time of their lives. But Part 91 is still very much based on consumer confidence. And consumer confidence is not back. Mm -hmm. So as such, I've kind of just kept this relatively low profile for exactly that reason. Because I don't want to be the loudest, brashest person on the block. I want to be the guy that you go to that gets shit done. Mm -hmm. And then you can go on with your life. Sure. So, Makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but I mean, for partnerships, it's, it's, it, I believe that partnerships are super important. And whether that be part of that discussion with the middle market, with the insurance brokers, with the transaction folks, um, that's super important. But also being able to form partnerships with people that are very good at things that I am not, right? Mm-hmm. I'm a halfway decent scheduler, halfway decent business person, maybe, <laughs> depending on who you ask. Um, if you ask my mother, it's like, bad idea but (laughs) um but you know that being said i'm not a maintenance person right not really a pilot like i can you know figure out how to make all this stuff work for pilots Mm. um and i can you know get scheduling systems up and running and i can you know help help decipher um you know aircraft management arrangements and i can help with with the different in-flight connectivity providers and figure out exactly, yeah. you know, what what the best use case is for for individual flight departments. But at the end of the day, 
I'm reliant on folks that are better than me at a lot of other things. Sure. So whether so whether that be, you know, like Craig Pickens is a great example, right? Um, Craig's probably one of the best in the business when it comes to executive recruiting. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he and I have he and I have spoken from time to time. We don't do a lot of business together. But um, you know, that being said, he's very successful at something that I'm not good at at all. Right. Right. So it's being able to form those partnerships. Um, and, you know, as we see consolidation in the industry, I mean, there's going to be some pretty splashy headlines, I would guess, over the next six months, mm-hmm. for better or for worse. Yeah, sure. Worse for some people, better for others. Um, and, you know, as a result of that, you know, people a lot of times don't come to me when everything's going good. They come to me when there's a crisis. Right. And, I mean, I would hope that they would come to me before that crisis really becomes a problem. But, you know, being able to have that self-actualization is part of the issue, right? If you're an aircraft management company, everything's good all the time because you want to save face in front of your clients. But then when things fall apart, you're deliberately looking for someone to blame. Mm-hmm. And that's and I've had job interviews where people have been like, are you a phone call or an email kind of person? I'm like, I'm a phone call person. Because mm-hmm. you and I having a conversation right now different cadence. We can communicate more directly. You can understand and infer from my sure. voice, all this stuff. Right. But the way that they looked at it and they were like, ah, that's not really how we do it. We want it on email. Well, they want an email because they want to be able to look back and blame someone. If someone put a punctuation mark in a different, in a wrong place. And it's like, that's not really, you know, passing the buck isn't what gets this done. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's super easy to you know, it's super easy to just, you know, blame the management company or blame this guy or blame that guy or be like, oh, the, the fuel truck was late or, you know, whatever the case may be, right? But at the end of the day, none of that ultimately matters. I mean, you can have a you can have a perfectly great 20-hour trip in a large golf stream and then, you know, wait for customs in Teterboro for 20 minutes and that ruins the entire trip like in, like a heartbeat. And there's nothing that you or I or the operator or the pilots can do about that. It's just the way it is. Now, we can try to mitigate that. But at the end of the day, you know, if it's a matter of an aircraft management company, you know, scrolling through their emails and furiously trying to figure out who messed up, it's like, what are we doing? Yeah. Like that harkens and circles back to the entire being a better employer, right? Because you don't want to put that pressure on someone who, you know, yeah, you're priority is keeping that $200,000 pilot on a G5, but are you really going to, you know, run a, a scheduler that's making $65,000 a year through through the meat grinder simply because Customs and Teterboro didn't show up fast enough because there was a line of 20 Learjets ahead of them? Like, what are we doing? Yeah, sure. You know, we have to be better. We have to be better employers. We have to be better people. We have to be able to, you know, be honest, right? Like, you know, just covering it up or or at the very least, um, you know, trying to ascertain who messed up where, that doesn't really help us at the end mm-hmm. of the day. I mean, I've worked for companies where every time a problem happens, they put together a new spreadsheet so that they can quantify it. And then all of a sudden, a three-step process becomes a 20-step process because just because that one trip didn't go well, all of a sudden you have an entire another checklist to run, yeah. right? It's like, <laughs> but Th- that's how they that's how they look at it because they have to be accountable to their owners whereas instead of just you know telling them straight up hey this is what happened this is what we're doing to correct it but 
trusting that their people, whether that be a pilot right. or a maintenance tech or a scheduler or an admin or, a, you know, an accountant who's, you know, filing the, who's, you know, sending that bill over to the owner, you know, whatever the, whatever process was the problem, we need to stop blaming each other internally to try to save face. We need to just be real with them, yeah. need, you know, and part of the problem is that a lot of these aircraft managers and a lot of the aircraft management companies, they're scared of their owners, right? Because mm. if you don't, if you're unhappy right here, you can go across the field to a different aircraft management company, and get the exact same service. Sure. All it's going to take is time, money, and a little bit of heartache. <laughs> You know? Yeah, sure. And I, I like your going back um, just a little bit uh, regarding like partnerships and creating really like a network of, mm -hmm. of people. And like you said, you're not you're not an expert in maintenance. You're not, a, you know, a, a pilot. And so um, I think that's really valuable advice for people that are coming up in the industry. And, you know, everybody tends to have their kind of um, specialty or what they're most familiar with. Um, but really like branching out and understanding some of the different aspects of the business and getting familiar with the different service providers or the different technology or the different players or just, you know, getting kind of like building this network is a really, I think a, is, is really valuable for people that are coming up through the industry. Mm -hmm. And especially, <clears throat> you know, working as like, if you're in a corporate flight department, um, the amount of value that you can provide by understanding like the, the full environment of the business, not just like the scheduling aspect mm -hmm. of things or just flying the plane or whatever it may be. I think that's that's huge. And the the people that I'm seeing really be successful in their roles are really, you know, relying on this network of people around them to help kind of fill the gaps that they have in in their experience and um, has been has been big for them. But um, and and more than that, it, it's about identifying exactly what those limitations are. Sure, right? Because I mean, I I a couple, God, I mean, it's what Monday. So mm -hmm. um, last week I was in Seattle and I did a uh, a G five fifty evacuation door training with with Aircare, and you know people were asking me there and they're like, well, do you want to become a corporate flight attendant? My answer is no. I want I just want to be more useful. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, if that means, and realistically, I mean, my goal other than expanding the company and being able to, um, you know, make sure that we can provide more services to more people on a more transparent basis. I mean, my ideal job is to, you know, be thrown into crew rest and on that 10 hour flight to London, if all of a sudden we decide, oh, well, we need to go to Frankfurt instead, or, you know, after London, we're going to go to Tel Aviv instead of, in, in, instead of Istanbul. You know, all of a sudden I'm just sitting here with my laptop and type, 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 yeah. crew rest and I make all of it happen. And all it costs them because I'm on retainer, all it costs them is an extra night in a hotel. Right. right? Sure. So because of that, you know, it's, it's, uh, I hate to say it's like a life hack, but it's like, it's an easy way to become a crew member on board an aircraft and be able to provide services, even if that's not the, you know, delineating line. Just sure. Quite frankly, I mean, sure, I know a little bit about wine because I've worked in the wine industry yeah. a little bit, but <laughs> I'm not – I'm probably a pretty terrible corporate flight attendant. And the nice thing is is that I recognize that. So, <laughs> Well, cool. Well, I, I appreciate you, you know, coming through and having this conversation. It's good to get some insights into, you know, some of the things that you're thinking about, some of the 
kind of long-term changes that you're thinking about for the for the industry um is there anybody that you want to give a give a shout out to um well uh i've been listening i i kind of half jokingly style myself as a, as a tech entrepreneur you know <laughs> the, the vest and all the stuff plaid um, and yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. I got the, got the plaid i mean <laughs> you can't tell i'm wearing sweat no i'm kidding i'm not wearing sweatpants um but uh i've been listening to a lot of uh podcasts uh by by kara swisher um yeah. and i think that she's absolutely incredible and if uh anybody has wants to be able to get a better understanding of global finance and tech, um, especially as it, uh, you know, in, in the grand scheme of looking at everything from social networking to the metaverse to the billionaire space race. Um, I think that she's absolutely brilliant. Um, and, you know, more than that, I, I think that one thing that, um, you know, I have a lot of friends that I could name a bunch of them, but it's not really my style. Um, <laughs> I will say that, um, you know, for all my brow beating and, uh, and, you know, punching aircraft management companies from time to time, I do have a bit, I do have a few favorites. Okay. Um, I do think that there's a bunch of people that are doing it incredibly well. I think that Grandview Aviation is doing exceptional things. Um, I mean, Jesse, I mean, just recently, Jesse, you know, had, uh, announced a reduction in, in daily flight hours for, for crews, yeah. which is huge because it's super difficult to, it's really easy to put in a press release. It's difficult to do in actuality. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's actually like a concrete step. Um, Summit Aviation up in Montana is doing an amazing job. Um, I think that there's a bunch of aircraft management companies out there. CB SkyShare out in, out in California and, and, um, and Utah is doing an amazing job. Um, I really am a big fan of the uh, of of. I mean, I do like the Platus platforms personally, mm -hmm. um, but I think that there's a lot of there's a lot of usability cases in people using aircraft for kind of like the the short the, the the shorter hops than being able to have that extra long leg. So like a PC twenty four and a PC twelve combination is a great combination for a lot of these companies, sure. right? But the flip side of it is that I believe that private aviation is taking off out of Reno and landing in your private ranch in Oregon and being able to go and hang out for the weekend and then come back because that's what they've paid for, right? If you're just get if you just have a G four that's going to run from Opelika to White Plains to Van Nuys to back to Opelika and just do that triangle in reverse, you do that on American Airlines. You don't need a private airplane for that. It just makes you feel a lot better doing mm -hmm. it. So I believe that there are better use cases. Um, but I also believe that the more charter companies and management companies that are specializing in more utilitarian uses of private aircraft are really the future. And I want to be able to be in a position to not only, um, not, not only um, focus on the part 91 um, companies, but at the same time, being able to give credit where credit is due. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's really important. Sure. I think that a lot of times, um, you know, everybody passes each other on the back in Vegas and Orlando, and then we go home and stab each other in the backs. And <laughs> I, I think that we should be giving credit work writers too. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, that's awesome. Um, yeah, some good, good name drops there. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I appreciate you coming out and sitting down and chatting yeah. and, uh, it was good seeing you, yeah, you too. and, uh, we'll do it again. Absolutely. All Looking right. Looking forward to it. Sounds good. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs>